and then, here and there, and always at sexpotcomedy.com. Welcome to the Narrators Podcast. I'm Robert Rutherford. And I'm Andrew Orvidal. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. The show takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at the Buntport Theater in Denver, Colorado. This episode was recorded live on November 19th, 2014. The theme of the evening was Family Secrets. A first-time storyteller and a professional puzzle box maker. So please give a warm welcome to Kagan Sound. Family secrets is a pretty tough topic. I uh, I just wrote this out, so I'm going to read it. When I was 12, I found a tiny, secret bag of powder stashed in my dad's briefcase. I smelled it, but I must have held it too close to my nose because I felt a wave of tingling sensation all over my body. I was high for the first time in my life. I always knew there was a secret reason my parents were not getting along, and I just found it. I did not enjoy uh, my first time high. I was a cerebral and anxious boy. My angst kicked in mostly in crowded rooms or when I got bullied. I was shy and I took careful observations of my environment before acting to avoid missteps. I daydreamed and my imagination to me was the only safe refuge. So getting high to me meant losing control of my brain. This was my worst fear. Aside from shyness, there was a second whammy out to get me. Puberty had reared its ugly head. It hijacked my body, and now beastly, wiry hairs sprouted in my nether regions. Each visit to the bathroom mirror only rewarded me a view to zits, each zit more fierce than the previous, marching ever closer to more prominent areas of my face. An unspeakable horror occurred to me in a public place. I cannot go into the details except that, to this day, I will never wear sweatpants again. My mutating body, and I were no longer the same team. It was on a mission to shame me in public, and it attacked without warning and with a vengeance. But puberty had nothing on my mind. My brain was making up for the wrongs my body dealt. Logic became my crutch. I had results to prove it. I actually enjoyed math. I began crushing my dad at chess. My school had asked me to teach every student how to make a paper crane. 1,000 cranes were made to honor Sarako Sasaki, a a Japanese girl who died from radiation exposure from the bomb. For brief moments, I had gained respect, and it felt great. But now as I stood there, high for the first time, I was saying goodbye to my brain. It had been compromised forever, or at least that's what I thought. It was 1989, and a few weeks prior, I'd watched this important public service announcement on TV. (laughs) It opens with a boy about my age, air drumming in his bedroom. I could hear the rock music blasting through his headphones. His bushy, 
mustachioed dad kills the radio, holds out a box, flips open the lid. Inside are little baggies of drugs. The kid panics, scrunches back on his bed while his dad interrogates, but his line of questioning takes an unexpected turn. Answer me, he says. Who taught you how to do this stuff? The kid can't handle it. He cracks. You, all right? I learned it by watching you. The dad, shame-struck, looks down, and the PSA announcer informs me that parents who use drugs have children who use drugs. <laughs> this did not sit well with me. Just say no wasn't good enough anymore. No, now I needed to say no for my parents, too. I was terrified of drugs. Another iconic PSA had informed me that drugs will fry my brain. It very effectively illustrated this by showing me an egg sizzling in a pan. I wasn't taking my chances with drugs, and I, I knew I could say no when it counted, but my parents were a different matter. They were definitely not in control. Lately, their arguing had escalated. Between glassware shattering and the doors slamming, I had gathered from their shouting that the new school tuition was draining their money. The prospect of working two jobs was stressing my dad out. My mom already had a second job lined up for herself. My dad wasn't on board. He didn't want to go back to driving a taxi in the evenings. My mom had just transferred me and my sister from public school to private school. She wouldn't tell me what the tuition was, but I knew it was a lot. The other kids who went there lived in big houses. Their parents dropped them off in shiny new cars. My mom got involved with our new school and taught a sewing class on Fridays. She also made costumes for the theater company. All this, she didn't trade for a lower tuition. And when times got tough, my mom retreated into her projects. And when she was in the zone, nothing could touch her. Getting me and my sister a premium education was her number one project. And she genuinely cared about us and loved to tell everyone about the great new school we attended. However, when people asked about her personal life, she subtly redirected the conversation. My sister and I could sense a deep sadness in her, and our dad too. He was gone a lot. He spent a lot of time going to the athletic club to play handball and basketball. He seemed to need a lot of time to unwind, and when he was around, he seemed more distant and detached. It was hard not to blame myself. I wasn't sure I really needed to go to this new school. But my mom insisted that I deserve the best possible education and that money was not the problem. Don't worry about it, she said. But I did worry. And it seemed like there was another more specific reason for my parents not getting along. I knew they were stressed out, but something else was going on too, something deeper than stress. I needed to find out what it was. If I could do this and bring it out into the open, maybe then my parents would be okay. One evening, my dad left his briefcase on the dining room table. I opened it, I checked the pockets, leafed through the files and inspected the lining, and at last I found it, the proof. This really had to be it. It was a suspicious-looking little bag. The item was deliberately tucked away in the hardest-to-find pocket. I squished it between my fingers and felt a crunchy crystal powder inside. I cut it open with scissors and spilled it out. Why did my dad carry this around? I took a whiff, and then it happened. 
Yes, the wave hit my brain and my heart fluttered. My ears rang and my head felt like it was floating on a string above my body. It was tingling all over. I was most definitely high. I ran to the kitchen and I chugged water from the tap. I wanted to quench it. I wanted it to stop. The war on drugs PSA announcements flickered through my mind. I couldn't get a visual out of my head. The egg sizzling in the frying pan. My brain was frying. The little pouch did not contain drugs. You know those little packets or rocks you find in beef jerky? <laughs> it's technically called a sorbent. It's a salt-like compound. It absorbs moisture and gas. A lot of products have a sorbent hidden in it. It keeps things dry and smelling fresh. Food, prescriptions, purses, and luggage have it too. This was what I found. The factory that made my dad's briefcase had put it there. I wasn't high. I was having a full-blown panic attack. A panic attack, or anxiety attack, is especially scary the first time it hits you. It can strike out of the blue, and most people have no idea what it is. It's a feedback loop between the brain and the body, and it happens when we invent a scary idea in our mind that tricks the body into fight-or-flight response. At this point, the body experiences real sensations which confirm to the mind that the invented idea is really happening. People often think they're having a heart attack or suffocating, or in my case, feeling the effects of getting high. The weird thing was that in a way I really was high. My heart was racing and my head was floating. Paradoxically, my acute fear of drugs was making me high. So my mom found me bawling on the kitchen floor between sobs. I told her, I know why you and dad are fighting. Dad's drugs got me high. She found the snipped little bag and crystal strewn across the dining room table. She sat down with me on the kitchen floor and she very calmly explained the reality of the situation. She knew I was having an anxiety attack. She has anxiety, anxiety attacks too. That day, I learned the dangers of overthinking the wrong thing. My parents were hiding something, but it wasn't concrete. It wasn't a money problem or a drug addiction. My parents were fighting about an emotional problem. Their feelings were just too painful to bring out into the open. And secretly, I'd been feeling a deep sadness for this. There was no mental way to solve it. I could not use logic to fix it. I just simply had to feel my way through it. I had more anxiety attacks. They came in small waves for two weeks after that first. My parents helped me get through it. Their love gave me strength, and I was able to go back to school and function on my own. I soon found a new hobby. It was a whole new world to me, and it became a safe place to think logically as much as I wanted. That year, I built my first puzzle box. Hagen Sound. And I want to give a very special shout out again to Buntport Theater. And I especially tonight, I want to make sure to say thank you to. Uh, to Brian Colonna and Aaron Rollman, who were here to, to assist me so I don't run around and freak out. Uh, so thank, thanks to them, too. Thank you. <clears throat> Your final storyteller is a quilter and a ceramics artist, but she says her greatest claim to fame is being Aaron's mom. So please give a warm welcome for Georgianne Rollman.
use this because I need my hands. I have to talk with my hands. Um, and it's way past my bedtime. Uh, when I was a kid, my very favorite thing was listening to my mom tell stories about her kind of crazy family. Uh, I thought that I knew all the skeletons in the closet. I knew that my grandma had been married twice. Um, her first husband was a philanderer, so she divorced him in 1911, which was unusual and, and scandalous, really. Um, really, not funny. <laughs> Um, I knew that their son, my Uncle Jack, had run away from home when he was 16 to join the Navy because Grandma wouldn't let him play football. I knew that his sister, my Aunt Marion, had been a flapper, and she was involved in a shooting incident in a speakeasy during Prohibition in which she got shot in the arm. And of course, I always thought that a jealous lover had shot her. But my brother told me that what he had always heard was that Aunt Marion actually shot herself in a ploy for sympathy from somebody. <laughs> and the point really is that I knew these stories when I was growing up. So I think that's why I was so flummoxed when I heard just a few years ago what I'm going to tell you tonight. Uh, so my mom was one of six children. The older half-brother and sister, Jack and Marion, were probably about eight or ten years older. And then my mom was the oldest of the, the four younger kids, my grandfather's children. Um, there was my mom and my uncle Les, my Aunt Dee Dee, whose real name was Hazel, and my Uncle Budge, whose real name was actually Budge. He, Uncle Budge was about, I think, about six years younger than my mom. So all four of them were pretty, pretty close together. And um, they grew up in Trinidad, Colorado, which is way in the south, um, maybe 20 miles north of the New Mexico border. Very pretty town, known best now as um, for, for sex change operations. Back then, it was a mining town, basically. During World War II, my, um, all, all the sisters, my mother and her sisters and sisters-in-law and whatever children there were at that point, lived together in a tiny little house right next to my grandma, who probably was still ruling the roost. You will not play football. <laughs> then when the, um, the men came home from the war, uh, my uncle Les and his wife Marilyn were the only two to actually move away from Colorado, except Uncle Jack, who was long gone. Um, they ended up in, in California, which in itself was fairly exotic. And um, they lived in Redondo Beach, a suburb of Los Angeles. He worked in the aerospace industry. She was a nurse. They raised four daughters. I knew the, the youngest two of them best, Debbie and Linny, because they were closest to my age. And I had spent a few summers with them when I was a teenager. I thought I knew them pretty well. Fast forward now to, say, the late 80s. Um, most of the earlier generation has died. Um, and, and we decide that we really should start having family reunions, because the only time we ever saw each other was at funerals. So that tradition started 
to happen. Uh, every other summer, uh, one or other of the, the cousins hosts a three-day reunion somewhere. And by now, uh, it's become a real institution. Um, people plan their vacations around the reunions, and the second generation is starting to host them. And, um, you know, 35 or 40 people will show up, and it's really kind of a hoot. But my own family and I weren't able to be part of the first reunions because we were traveling. I'm very thirsty. Um, sorry, I'm not talking very well. Um, my husband had joined the Foreign Service, and we lived overseas. Um, and very seldom did our home leaves actually coincide with the family reunions. So I didn't start going to these until um, we retired uh, several years ago. And one of the first ones that I went to was held in Monument, well, not in Monument Lake, at Monument Lake, um, not too far from Trinidad. And it's really, oh, thank you, babe. <laughs> now I have to put this down. I'm shaken. Um, it's a, a lovely location, but um, there's not a whole lot to do. So mostly what we did was visit with each other. And there were, you know, like tables for making crafts and tables for playing games. And there was this one big picnic table full of boxes of old family pictures. So I'm sitting at the photo table one day, and my sister is directly across from me. My cousin Pat is there, and one of the California cousins, and various of the younger people. I'm looking through these pictures, and I came across one of my aunt Marilyn and her four daughters as adults, you know, a fairly recent picture. And it really struck me that my cousins all looked so much like members of the previous generation. So I said out loud, whoa, in this picture, Leslie Ann looks exactly like Aunt Marion. And Pat, you look like my mom. And Debbie reminds me of Grandma. But Lenny doesn't seem to look like anybody. My sister looks at me from across the table and without missing a beat says, well, that's because she looks like her real father. I'm like, her real father? What? <laughs> I had this moment where it really felt like my reality had shifted. One second I was here, and the next second I was here, and something had happened in between. Next to me, my, pa uh, my cousin Pat's daughter, who is actually now her son, but that's a different story, and <laughs> it's not a secret. Rosie was probably about 16 at the time, and her eyes got enormous, and she yells, you mean grandma was a swinger? <laughs> Pat's going, oh, it wasn't really like that. This is what happened. It turns out that in the early 50s, my Aunt Marilyn and Uncle Les um, swapped spouses with the neighbors. He moved in next door. The neighbor moved into their house with Aunt Marilyn, and, and my cousin Lenny was conceived during this time. <laughs> Pat says that... Uh, by the time Lenny was about three, um, Uncle Les was back home raising her as his own daughter. Um, and, you know, ultimately it absolutely doesn't matter 
except that it, it made me feel like my life is really, really boring. <laughs> but my, my cousin is my cousin, regardless of whether we're really related. I think, though, that my initial reaction to um, finding out that she isn't who I thought she was really made me kind of um, question my own reality and truth. And I've decided that it's, it's tricky knowing our own histories because there are so many ways in which they can be rewritten. And not always because people are trying to keep secrets from us, but sometimes because we just don't ask the right questions. You know, like, how come Lenny doesn't look like everybody else? But I guess my suggestion for those of you who are interested in your own histories is to um, take the time to, to ask the people who have the answers before it's too late, because um, you might find some interesting secrets in your own family closets that'll make you feel really boring. Although, judging from the other stories tonight, that might not be true. <laughs> Thank you. Keep it going for Georgiana Roman. The Narrator's Podcast is recorded and produced by Ron Doyle. The Narrator's Podcast is brought to you by these amazing sponsors. The great guys at Illegal Pete's and Greater Than Records, who in addition to providing rad burritos all over town, provide great local music and comedy. Check out the appropriately named Sexy Pizza at either of their locations in Capitol Hill or Old South Pearl, or on their website, sexypizzaonline.com. And finally, by the internet superheroes at Commerce Kitchen, who provide internet marketing solutions and search engine optimization for all your e-commerce needs. Check them out at commercekitchen.com. For more information about the narrators and to listen to past episodes, go to thenarratorspodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Yeah. <laughs> 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 <laughs>